Welcome to The Threat Show, powered by Fletch. I think that being complacent in what we're looking at and what we're trying to protect and thinking that everything's going to be okay until that is the greatest problem we have. And that's where the physical and cyber side come in very parallel with each other. Hi, and welcome to The Threat Show, powered by Fletch. I'm Darian Kinlan, VP of Technology here at Fletch, and joining me as always is Chris Wilder, Research Director and Senior Analyst at Tag Cyber. Hey, welcome back, Chris. As always, great to be here, Darian, and I'm super excited about having Smitty on the on this today, so I don't want to steal your thunder, though. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So we're also joined this week by a special guest, Smith Tennyson. Smith has had three decades of experience in physical and cybersecurity industries, working with clients from around the world. He's developed programs and manuals to combat active shooters for law enforcement, wrote the master security plan for Greenport General Aviation Airport, developed emergency tactical deployment plans for government agencies, and so much more. He's commandeered canine, SWAT, EOD, marine dive units, mobile field force, aviation helicopters, and high liability training, and was the commander of the Special Operations Training Group for RDSTF Region 3, served as an active tactical operator and team commander for the U.S. Department of Homeland Security Region 3 Domestic Security Task Force, provided service protection for the United States Supreme Court Justices, with United States Marshal Service Task Force, and the list goes on. But more recently, <laughs> over the past seven years, Smith has served as the founder of Harbinger Solutions Group, a security operations service that provides comprehensive physical and cybersecurity solutions, threat risk assessments, gap analysis, and global operational strategies for their customers all over the globe. Wow. Welcome to the show, Smith. Thank you for having me. As a, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. Glad you're here. So we'll be talking with Smith further about his experiences and thoughts on the relationship between physical and cyber more in depth shortly. But first, let's run through the numbers and the interesting threats of the week. It's kind of interesting because we had a little bit of a reprieve last week, and it seems like that's gone now compared to what we've seen previously. We, we saw another uptick in about 11 new major threats. I think what everyone's asking as we kind of close out Q1, Chris, is, mm -hmm. you know, is it going to be higher next quarter or about the same? Don't know. Yeah. I Last week I was I was out traveling and uh, had a long conversation with some folks specifically about ransomware attacks. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the general conventional wisdom is, yeah, we're seeing about a 15% decrease in the number of ransomware attacks and a 50% 50, 50 decrease in the, the actual people that pay it. As a matter of fact, I'm dealing with a, a very, very lovely ransomware attack this week for one of my clients, but I'm kind of calling Bravo Sierra on that. It's just the, the tried and true techniques that these folks are using. It's exploding. The new mm -hmm. ransomware attacks, they're not coming about. They're, they're very consistent with, you know, we're not seeing a lot of innovation, I guess, in ransomware, if that's even a thing. But in terms of people doing stupid things, yeah, that's happening more and more. I disagree. <laughs> With the 15% de decrease. So I'm not surprised by this. I think this is, you know, and obviously malware keeps malwareing. So, right. 
Exactly. Well, let's let's dig into the numbers a little bit further here. So as I mentioned, we've got 11 new ones for the week, but in reality, seven kind of transitioned from emerging to trending where two or three different outlets started covering them. And then 12 kind of went mainstream, meaning more than four or more different outlets started covering them. 15 kind of went inactive, meaning we haven't seen anything new from them over the past 30 days. But it's it's certainly been active this week. You can't you can't say that we haven't hit our stride. Who knows what the next quarter is going to bring as we kind of close out March? But I think from this vantage point, we'll see what the next set of quarters for the year ultimately transpire. And I think maybe these interesting threats might provide a glimpse to that. Who knows? The the other side of that too, the kind of the mainstream that turned you know, from threat to a breach. Boy, there were there were just a lot of big time brands that that have been hit, and it's starting to cause a lot of folks to kind of bring a lot of these threats into the mainstream. I mean, the, the Ferrari's Formula One team got yeah. got whacked with a ransomware attack the just just recently. Well, actually, it wasn't that recent. It was they just disclosed it, right? And, um, because they're a European company, they've got the the GDPR stuff that they have to deal with, and they're they're in a lot of trouble right now. So they've had to disclose the TTPs or the techniques that they used. Ferrari had to do that. U.S. Marshals got got hit again. Dole mm-hmm. Foods, um, you know, food supply chain side of that, they they, they got mm-hmm. hit again. So we're starting to get a lot of very very big big companies that are susceptible to ransomware. And I think what's happening is they're being forced to disclose. So yeah. now we're seeing that's why you're seeing kind of an increase in mainstream attacks, and then the emerging attacks are they're just they're just going to stay. But man, what a busy, busy last couple of weeks. It's been crazy. So let's get into uh, some of the more interesting ones that we found, actually. So for our list for this week, we have a number of vulnerabilities related to Google Chrome, Android devices, Windows devices, a new variation of an existing type of Android malware, and even an analysis of some of the most severe vulnerabilities found by nation state threat groups over the past year. But first, top on our list is actually Google Chrome's latest round of updates, right? Now, every other week prior, when we talk about Google Chrome zero-day vulnerabilities, there's no surprise, right? So what's interesting about this round of of, uh, fixes? It turns out that nested deep within the list of patches that Google rolled out is a vulnerability within Google Chrome's password manager built-in password manager. It would allow an attacker to basically steal information unbeknownst to the user by pulling those credentials and sensitive data out of their password manager. Not great. I think what a lot of people are kind of wondering is if a security operator is kind of going to get more budget for a actual password manager. A lot of times the CFO or leadership might say, well, why do we need this, right? It's built into every modern browser. Why do you need a separate password manager outside of it? I think this type of issue is kind of exhibit A where having that DMARC could potentially help add value. I'm curious, Chris, what are your what are your thoughts here? Just dump Chrome and go get Island. <laughs> you know, it seems like every week, we keep running into Chrome having all these challenges. And, you know, Microsoft's going through the same thing. I think they had 80 patches last on Patch Tuesday. I just kind of think that good cybersecurity hygiene is is obviously very important. Yeah, you don't want to budget for other password vaults and, and things like that. I'm also kind of pushing right now on the identity side. I think if, you know, identity hygiene is so important. 
that, you know, that, and that starts up front before it gets to the browser. But I just, like I said, I think people really need to take stock and go back and think about, you know, this is, this is the gateway into the enterprise. And so is Chrome the right one to use? I don't know. I mean, last week we had one with Firefox and we, you know, we've had Exploder, Microsoft Exploder, several issues there. It's, it's the browser is one of the biggest, you know, that's the, that's the entry point. And so I'm, I'm a little bit, not surprised by this. It's a huge target, but I'm I'm a little bit more surprised because there have been so many attacks against Chromium browsers that that are making it almost a you know it's it's got to be something. It's probably a line item, or there's got to be there's got to be a better solution. I think Island and Talon both have good products, and I don't think browser isolation is the right way to go. Mm-hmm. But, but I do think we need to we really need to take browser security more more seriously than we do. Yeah, just like segmenting high security functions out of yeah. the browser and moving them to a yeah. separate app can at least give you some degree of protection against yeah. this. It's not perfect, but yeah. it might be a step in the right direction. We push convenience in front of privacy, and that's never a good thing. Right. Exactly. So moving on our list, it turns out that if we look at all of the zero day vulnerabilities that reported over the past year, right? Mandian actually compared that and looked specifically at the subset of vulnerabilities that were leveraged and used and exploited by nation state threat groups. What they found was actually kind of interesting. Obviously, no surprise that Microsoft, Google, and Apple kind of made up the majority of that ecosystem of of vulnerabilities. But what's interesting about this is that even the attackers had a little bit of a dip because of the COVID pandemic in 2020, but they recovered well beyond, you know, what was projected for the following two years thereafter. And it certainly seems like there is no loss in development or weaponization of these attacks at all. And it seems like there's no light at the end of the tunnel here. It's just going to get worse and worse and worse in years to come. The other interesting aspect from from this type of analysis, though, was that the types and the usage of the vulnerabilities that were leveraged by these particular threat groups appeared to be mostly for cyber espionage. But we started to see some evidence of you know financial gain also being a motivation behind this. So when we talk with small, medium-sized businesses, you know, when they read this information, they might be wondering, why the heck should I care? I'm not a target by nation state threat groups. And the reality is, once this sort of tactic is known, it is very likely to be leveraged by less sophisticated groups, other cyber criminals that absolutely (laughs) make you a target. Like leveraging a common sports analogy of You don't want to be where the puck is at, but you want to be where the puck is going. Looking at this list, you can kind of see evidence of these sorts of vulnerabilities likely to be repurposed and used by criminal elements beyond just nation state groups. So if you want to know what are the set of vulnerabilities that are likely going to be used and abused by cyber criminals in the next three to six to nine to 12 months, this is a pretty good list of ones that you might want to care about. Does that make sense, Chris? Yeah, I mean, nation state means exactly they're funded by countries, North Korea, Iraq, or Iran, China, all, you know, they they fund these things. So the, you know, Lazarus, 
for example, that's kind of the one that keeps popping up over and over and over again. If that's, you know, they're probably the biggest one. You've got, you know, the sandworm guys and the APT 37 guys. They're funded by governments and they're, yeah. you know, they used to be called hacktivism, but now it's, no, no, you're, you're actually just a bad guy doing bad things on behalf of your government. And that's funded and created a massive cottage industry that, of course, it's going to it's going to shake out. It's going to shake down and the attacks are getting more targeted, more sophisticated. And when Smitty and I were started off doing this work, you know, a lot of times it was just the, the, the attacks were very random. We've done work in the Middle East and other places and the attacks were random, but they were all very, they were focused on espionage. And, you know, it, was, it wasn't a matter of keeping them out is what you did when they got in. But now they're becoming very, very sophisticated, like what we've seen with Fortinet. And they're they're very, very targeted. So they know what they're doing. And, oh, by the way, the government has a nice big line item in their budget for Lazarus. And I, it's just, it's going to get worse. It's the, you know, this, this cyber oh, is here. And if I may inject in that, you know, we mentioned just a little while ago about the pandemic that happened yeah. and how shortly after that, you know, the spike and increase went up. Well, it's the same thing in the, in all the security aspects, both physical and cyber, while everybody's attention was diverted for that two-year span on something else health mostly, it left us completely vulnerable on our blind side for them to enhance their capabilities on the cyber, enhance their capabilities on physical, and intertwine those for breaches. And now we're behind them trying to catch up. And that's where that spike is continuing, trying to catch up from something that we completely turned our back on for two years. And when you have these global states, they're not just researching it. They actually have been you know, insight into governments. They know which governments to attack and where our weaknesses are because our governments are even more behind than everybody else. And that's just that's the trend that I see is is we're now playing catch up instead of we're more reactive than we've ever been now. Yeah, I agree with you there 100 percent. Long way to go. Yeah. So in terms of other threats for the week, we have a couple of interesting ones that have started to. You know, it, it feels like what's old is now new again, right? You remember many years ago when companies would try to send out redacted documents in a PDF, they would place black squares over the text thinking that that is a form of redaction. And then some enterprising journalist would go in and say, no, actually the raw text is here. And many different scandals cropped up as a result of that. Well, same thing seems to be happening again here with Google Pixel phones. Specifically, if you take a screenshot of your phone and then proceed to crop it or redact it and then send it to a recipient, the recipient can, surprise, surprise, undo all of that and recover the full information. This has now been called the Acropolis. You would think that this would be specific to just Google devices, but in reality, no, it was also found within Windows systems as well. Specifically, completely different tools, also vulnerable to the same problem. So I think <laughs> this seems to be like we're just now uncovering this category of problem and people are kind of going to be left wondering, well, what other tools are also impacted by this, as well as what data has been shared across social media and other channels that could otherwise be uncovered because the person who shared had no clue that all the sensitive data was going inside their tweet or inside their post. Curious your thoughts here, Chris. 
this is just stupid. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I crop my pictures, maybe cut out an ex-girlfriend or something. I don't know. But I, I don't know. But the, the, I think the, the scarier one are, are deep fakes. And mm-hmm. we're seeing a whole round of, especially coming out of Italy, and, and we'll talk to Smitty about this later, about kind of the enforcement side of this, is deepfakes are uh, specifically deep nudes are a big, 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 big problem. There's a group mm-hmm. out of Italy that was scouring through social media, taking pictures of people, moms or dads put, putting pictures of their kids on, mm-hmm. on Facebook and Twitter, wherever. And they're going through scraping those and then turning them into deep nudes and selling them on the dark web across, you know, the pedophile Oof, networks. And that's scary. This is that's a very, very, very big challenge. And we identified the group. And one of the problems is that the not the Italian authorities and Interpol, they had no mechanism in place to be able to enforce it. They hmm. didn't know a thing about building a case, a law enforcement case against this, building the evidence and, you know, talking about talking to the victims and, and then, and more, you know, even scarier chasing them down and, you know, in the dark web. So you literally have an exchange of stolen social media pictures that an innocent parent took of their kid at Disneyland. Mm -hmm. And, and all of a sudden that kid's, you know, kids out there. and, And this is, this is a big, big, big problem. It's only going to get worse. Yeah. Um, I don't, you know, I see the, the whole nefarious part about, okay, I cropped my picture. Now I've got it. You know, people could see where I'm at and, and, and stuff like that. That's not a big deal, but it is going to have some, have some implications both from an intelligence perspective, because a lot of times people don't like to have their pictures taken. We, and, you know, military folks, you know, identifying special operations guys in the middle East or whatever, but mm-hmm. the bigger one are the deep, the deep fakes and the deep nudes that are popping up that are causing a lot of challenges. And I've written a lot about this and, that keeps me awake at night. This, not so much. I could care. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. It's yeah. still pretty, pretty scary developments. I mean, understanding what are the privacy implications of doing something as simple as taking a picture and editing it and posting it have been challenged greatly by, by this latest turn of events. Well, you know, uh, probably, probably a good idea not to take a bunch of pictures and post them everywhere. It's, right, right. It's, assume yeah. assume everything is public, right? Yeah, exactly. You're going to yeah. be on So rounding up uh, towards the end of our list, we have a new malware variant that is targeting Android devices, specifically posing as, you know, a fake message app like WhatsApp or Telegram. These things have been around for many, many weeks, months, even years But what's interesting about these latest variants is that they're now, the attackers are now employing optical character recognition to scan all of the photos on the device after compromise and then ship the data from those photos back to the attacker. And this is designed to steal cryptocurrency funds, basically. So if you have any sensitive data in your phone, maybe you took it as a picture, chances are now... If your phone's compromised, that information is now in the hands of an attacker. Pretty crazy, but I guess not so surprising of a improvement or tweak rather than just shipping the images back to the attacker. They're just doing OCR on on device and only stealing what they need to. Is that fair MO, Chris? Again, this one's stupid too. (laughs) (laughs) You know, a lot of people think that WhatsApp, Telegram, all those, they're, they're, they're secure. They're not. You know, these originally started off kind of from a sexploitation perspective where people were 
taking pictures of themselves or not doing the right thing, mm-hmm. they can exploit from that. This is this is just something else, you know, another mechanism. But it does go back to the conversation that we always have is about cyber hygiene. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that most people, like I said, put privacy and security in a backseat to convenience. Mm-hmm. And, but having good cyber hygiene, like multi-factor authentication, you know, texting texting you to log into an uh, logging into an application validating your identity those kinds of things that's that's important because you know that at least puts a barrier between these bad guys and you yeah like i said i think again i think you know where do you pick these men <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah it's crazy it's it's yeah, absolutely it is. Crazy. i know it's yeah so yeah but anyways i you know cyber hygiene will probably fix a lot of this Makes sense. Don't, you know, don't, don't take pictures of, of your crypto account. Yep, exactly. Last but not least, there was news recently as early as last month where the U.S. Marshal Service was compromised and sensitive information was presumed to be stolen as a result of this. It's pretty, pretty severe, not just for organizations, but for the nation as a whole. I'm curious, you know, there are some pretty far reaching implications from this. Is that, you know, your read too, Chris? I will say this one is not stupid. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> but this is really this is really something that you know Smitty really knows a lot about. You know, we're seeing a lot of big attacks on on government agencies. I mean, my mm-hmm. my clearance, uh, all my clearance information is has been sold uh, <laughs> through my work at the with the intelligence community, and it's right. It's, there was a very specific attack on the VA as well. Smitty, I'd love to get your insight on kind of what 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 does this mean? Because I know there's a lot of challenges with this one. There's a good oh yeah. I mean, you take the marshal service for example. I mean, they're responsible for all the federal judicial process, the federal judges, witness protection. They are the ones that serve the federal fugitive warrants on a global scale. While the, this particular breach, they said that nothing within the witness protection program was compromised. Yet they would almost have to say that just because mm-hmm. of the people that are in that WinSec program. You know, and the marshals for themselves, if it wasn't breached, that would be great. But the WinSec have some of the most covert federal agents of all the agencies because of who they protect and why they protect them. But this has a massive reach, not just in the U.S., but globally. Yeah. Like I said, because we have federal warrants and the scourge of the earth, if you will, that we're tracking run to countries that don't have extradition treaties with us. But it also gives those that are taking the side of the government to help bring down the bad guys, if you will, gives them a location of where they are, possibility of targeting a specific agent. Because let's face it, you may not get to the bad guy, but if I can get to the agent and his family, kind of reverting back on the conversations we just had a moment ago about the pictures and everything else. If I can get to that particular agent and I can exploit his or her family, I can exploit them. So the far-reaching effect of breaching an agency like the U.S. Marshal Service is is pretty catastrophic, more so than like the FBI or anybody else. And I have known and still know several U.S. Marshals, and they are, as a federal agency, one of the top there is. And for them to be breached like this could have some far-reaching effects on a global scale as far as bad guys are concerned and location and things like that. So I think my biggest concern would be, did it really affect protection services for witnesses and federal covert operations. And that's that would be my biggest concern. I'm sure there's going to be more come out on this. 
So we will see, but there's a lot of it that they're never going to tell you just because of the implications of getting out publicly. But I think the system that, you know, with all their sensitive information they have, they could draw a lot of stuff from that and, and use that in all kinds of different opportunities that we would never be able to catch, catch up with. I mean, they could literally just run away from us and we would be in the catch up mode for years. So th- actually that kind of brings up a question actually more for Darian. Yeah. But, you know, the, the U.S. Marshals really don't have any kind of visions on what they disclose, what they don't disclose. I think this is big enough where they were actually they actually had to. So in terms of, you know, like Ferrari did not the F1 team did not want to disclose anything. But GDPR made them made them do that because they mm-hmm. you know, they obviously didn't want to go to cyber jail. Should we have a, a disclosure I don't know if it's a policy or a process or, I mean, what, I mean, Joe Sullivan was, was, you know, recently sentenced. He was found guilty, got busted for, you know, for, it was a cover up, but it was, you know, the disclosure side of it. How how should we, as security practitioners, should there be some, some kind of guideline or some kind of group that looks at disclosure and, and says, you know, this is, these are the steps you have to take. I think it, it's certainly been, a requirement for many different industries, right? Like if you're a publicly traded company, you've got to adhere to SEC guidelines around breach disclosures as well. But there is no national standard that applies for everyone or even across countries, right? Which it's worth having a discussion about. It's worth figuring out what that should look like and what are the motivations behind it? Because honestly, Let's say you pick a disclosure policy that you think is reasonable. Maybe it's 90 days. Maybe it's 180 days. Maybe it's a year, right? But guess what? Attackers, they're not going to honor that policy. It's possible they'll announce details of the breach in their own channels and information will get out anyway. So it's always been kind of a a laggard mechanism, a, a absolutely vital mechanism to be sure. But it's not necessarily going to be the bleeding edge of how this information is discovered and used and potentially abused. Yeah, we, a lot of the enterprise teams that we're dealing with, also some of the smaller third-party vendors that are leveraging, you know, much larger platforms, you know, like a Sentinel One or something along those lines. Especially with the recent breaches, you know, around open source and Python libraries and things like that, it's they're finding vulnerabilities in software. And we've had, it's almost like a counseling sessions with these companies. They're saying, look, we found this vulnerability. Do we need to report it back to the vendor? How do we report this publicly? <laughs> we've had folks saying, hey, we've been shunned by the vendor saying, yeah, you don't right. even know what you're talking about. Kind of like going back to the Apple thing we talk, talk about, I think weekly now is, you know, nothing to see here, move along. And I think it's, it just makes sense. I don't know if I, I want to lean on, you know, jump in and say, well, we got to make this policy or a process illegal. Right. But I think we need to have more guidance and guidelines on on how we disclose. And that that's that's really kind of where this has been question bothers me all the time. But it's but I, you know, I think we're I don't know. It's it's a it's an open horizon right now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've seen some really positive evidence out of Europe, many different yeah. European countries where they offer basically amounts to whistleblower protections for yeah. you know, researchers to try to do the right thing so that if 
you know, they disclose and there are negative consequences because the vendor decides not to use that information appropriately, then at least the disclosure is protected to some degree. Yeah. That certainly could help, yeah. you know. The, U- the U.S. has a whistleblower statute. Most states do for that right. same that, yeah, that same environment. Unfortunately, what is disclosed is not always accurate. It's exactly what mm-hmm. Chris said a moment ago. Nothing to see here. Move along. They say just enough, just enough to comply, yeah. and then yeah. every the the real breach and the real significance of what occurred is never disclosed fully. So, yeah. this it brings up some really interesting questions, especially how this article kind of touches upon not only the cyber implications but also the physical implications. Yeah. If you want to dive deeper into this week's trending threats, be sure to check out the interactive Fletch newsletter and Trending Threats app. To see all the stories we talked about, peruse the Thread Index at your leisure, and more. Now, on to our special guest interview. Which kind of leads into a deeper discussion for you, Schmitty, around all these different topics. Like, you know, a lot of people treat physical and cyber as kind of like two separate silos. Mm -hmm. We have leaders that are chief information security officers, CISOs, like CISOs versus chief security officers, CSOs. And the main difference between the two is the CSO combines physical and cyber, whereas the CISO just focuses on cyber. Do you see kind of like a trend where organizations are having to come up with kind of a unified physical cyber strategy because of all these different external factors or, or maybe there's yeah, something I, else to play here. I think it's, it's starting to grow And you know, Chris and I again have worked together for years and we came up with the thought processes of there's really no distinction between the two. They run mm-hmm. parallel and they should be together. Unfortunately, it, it's taken a lot of catastrophic cyber events and or physical events that were based off a cyber attack for mm-hmm. people to realize, Oh, we need to start talking. I literally have done some work with, enterprise organizations to where the security chief and the information chief sit across the hall from each other and don't even know what the what the other one's wearing that day, much less talk to each other. And it's wow. it's poor. I mean, Chris and I did a large medical facility a few years ago and we saw that very thing. The cyber mm-hmm. side and the physical side in the same giant medical provider did not communicate whatsoever. Yeah. Wow. And I think it's going to be a trend. I wish it was a little bit more expedient, but it's a slow process. But yeah, I think the trend is that they're starting to combine the two. I absolutely do. I agree with that because this is a big red team drill that we did on on site red team drill, both physical and cybersecurity. And uh, it was, was it 250 locations, I think? Uh, 288 out of their 356 total. Yeah. So it was, it was massive. And a lot of it was, you know, walking around, looking at cameras and, you know, all the different things. But you're, you're absolutely right, Smitty. It was security hygiene is, is lacking. And so one of the key things that we wound up, you know, also seeing is we would go to server rooms and there were no locks on the door. <laughs> they, you know, you open it up. And wires everywhere. I looked at Smitty. I just shut the door. I said, we're not going in there. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly what he did, too. That is not a lie. That's exactly what he said. That's why we have to have, you know, the the convergence there. So one of the things I kind of would love love to have you kind of, because you and I bemoan this quite a bit. Mm -hmm. I try not to cuss anymore. But we bemoan quite a bit is what what are some of the things that from a physical to cybersecurity perspective, what are some of the things that 
people just overlook the, the dumb stuff. What what do you see when you're going into an assessment? I mean, it should be obvious to everybody, but maybe, maybe not. One of the things that I notice most is that the bulk of the people start to follow traditions and not reality. They're looking at AI. They're looking at the cyber. They're looking at the advancements that we have in, in digital protection and video systems. I mean, there are video cameras now that lock on and do facial recognition and AI and tracking and everything else that are the norm now that 10 years ago were a $100,000 option for your video camera. And now they're all included. Well, you get in the in the security world on the physical side, we see this quite often is they get very complacent. Well, we have this camera system. If somebody comes in, we can track them. We can do this. The problem with that is I have been in those enterprise areas that have those. I have literally been told we're not worried about this particular area. And we'll go back to that medical provider, Chris. We did a red team on that. And I said, all right, well, let's see how good your facial recognition and tracking is. Myself and another operator literally took a plastic card with no picture on it, hooked it to our collar, turned it around like it was backwards, walked through secured doors into a NICU unit, and were there 15 minutes waving at the cameras and nothing recognized us. Wow. And then we walked out. So I think that being complacent in what we're looking at and what we're trying to protect and thinking that everything's going to be okay until... That is the greatest problem we have. And that's where the physical and cyber side come in very parallel with each other. And I see that more often than not. And adversely, you know, so we have guards at the front gate. Nobody can get through. Yeah, they technically can. Because if you have somebody like Chris's capability or his team, I can stand outside the door and have a message system that's encrypted by him and say in three, two, one, and he unlocks the doors on a digital side and I walk through the door. I don't have to physically breach anything anymore. I can just wait for my cyber component or hackers to get me inside. That is my biggest concern right now is everybody just getting very complacent about where technology is going. And while AI is an incredible thing, it doesn't stop somebody standing in front of you. That's what we've got to look at. And it's not just the US, it's on a global scale. And a lot of the countries that are even behind where we are are really experiencing that, especially in the aviation facilities on an international scale. A lot of the airports have facial recognition, but they don't have anybody watching the cameras. <laughs> well, they, it, it becomes an afterthought, you know. Exactly. Yeah, we've, got, we've got facial wow. recognition, but we're not. We may it may click a box, but people tend to get on the cyber side. We tend to get alert fatigue, and we right. get there's so much information coming in that we don't do a very good job of of tuning our tuning what we what we see and what we don't and so people tend to sometimes listen to my my kids yell and scream I, you know i tune them out right <laughs> well and then and not getting into a political debate because that's not what we're here for but we have this fear of offending somebody else as well yeah well, if i recognize them or i do this and i question them as to why they're there well you shouldn't be questioning me. you shouldn't be recognizing my face well you know security comes with a little bit of discomfort every now and then which would you rather be? Would you rather be a victim or inconvenience for five minutes? Right. Yeah. Kind of move, moving on to that, just kind of with that in mind, one of the things at TAG we're really getting a lot of interest with and, and a lot of questions specifically around executive protection. And it, it's not just protecting your, your top executives, but protecting your entire company, your folks that travel a lot. Right. And we worked together on, on a project where there was a, a CSO of a very, very large pharmaceutical company, they were worried about their their exposure for their executives because it's you know high profile thing during COVID. 
Mm-hmm. One of the challenges that we, you know, we we went off immediately, and we found that the family was the one that was compromising them, not you right. know, not executive himself. He didn't, you know, he didn't have any really any social media presence, but their daughter, their 14 year old daughter had posted the entire itinerary of where they're going to be over the summer in France, two months before the vaccine came out. And mm-hmm. so I actually had never seen anybody just go stone cold white like that. He, all the blood came out of his head. Yeah. Uh, but they quickly called the travel agent to cancel everything. But I mean, what are, what are some of the things from an executive protection perspective that you're seeing that executives and companies could do better to protect their employees? Well, a lot of it is not doing what the guy's daughter did, but you have employees doing it and you have not only the executives, but their assistants. You have an executive assistant that maintains his or her CEO's calendar, maintains their travel itinerary, maintains everything for them. And it is often emailed or communicated via text messages or a screenshot of something and sent off. And then you have it intercepted. The screenshot is now exposed to what it really is. Instead of just the flight, it's the flight, the number, the airport, the gate they're in, where they're landing, the rental car company, everything. So I think that paying a little bit more attention to the information you're actually putting out and to whom you're putting out and how you're putting out and taking a couple of degrees of separation from just direct access to it. And most importantly, looking at companies like Tag Cyber or Harbinger or any of the other groups and getting their input on what the actual threat of where you're going is and taking the recommendations of the people that actually job is to protect you, not just get you there on your Gulfstream G10. So as far as the executive protection work goes, old school, you you put a bunch of knuckle-dragging Neanderthals around the executive and nobody crossed them. Today's environment, it's so easy to get to an executive just through the digital world that yeah. you don't really need but one or two bad guys already pre-planted, sometimes pre-deployed days before they arrive just because of the breach of the cyber. And then it goes back to what we just talked about. You know, they only give you enough information to let you know something happened. And then the physical guys show up and they're outmanned, outgunned in some cases and outfought in most cases on the digital side. Because candidly, the physical security world, most of us know nothing to the cyber extent that we should know when we get there. We rely on our intelligence guys to feed us real-time intelligence based on data analytics and analysis, intelligence-driven analysis. And when that intelligence is two to three weeks behind the eight ball, again, as we said at the beginning of the show, we're in the catch-up mode after two years of a pandemic. So there's a lot of pre-planning and you know, you get a Fortune 100 executive, his schedule's planned out for months and months and months in advance. So they have a month or two to plan where he or she is going to be at any given time. That's the biggest problem that we have. So I think it's getting those people that disseminate that information for the executives to really bring in their executive protection teams, whomever they may be, whether it be in-house or a third-party vendor, and plan it appropriately with a cyber expert and a physical expert together sitting at the table. And while there are those that claim to be a physical security expert and a cybersecurity expert, I beg to differ. I mean, you can be good at both, but you really need the best at one and have those two people combined on the same sheet of music. And which is why Harbinger and Tag work so well together, because we rely on each other's strengths and strong points. And I depend on Chris's and his team's capabilities as well. He does mine and my team's capabilities. 
And then we go from there. It's just got to be a parallel operation all the way. And I know that was kind of a around my leg to get to my elbow conversation, but that's essentially what it is. It's, it's, you know, more pre-planning. You know, as, as, as executives kind of raise their profile and their status in the, in the world, one of the things that a lot of these big companies right now are, have a big, big, big problem with just fake accounts. You know, I could go off and make, they, they, they'll make a, you know, several different LinkedIn profiles mm-hmm. that portend to be Joe Schmo from this great big company. And this is what I do. But instead of spelling a name S-H-O-E, it's S-H-O-W and building all the different kinds of profiles. Right. So there's a lot of social media discipline that needs to happen there too. Right. And I think that that's disinformation, misinformation campaigns are really becoming a huge problem for companies, especially as layoffs start happening. And you mm-hmm. know, we, we work through problems with that world. But I think that's something that you know a lot of companies don't think about is is how do I how do I defend defend my executives and my employees against, you know, misinformation online. And I think that's, that's something that we, you know, we as an industry really need to kind of clamp down on and start getting a little bit more insight to their, in there too. So that's me editorializing. You know, it's, it's funny you mentioned that. So, you know, years ago on the physical side, we used to talk about, you'd have, you'd wait for an executive or an EP opportunity to show up yeah, and they would show up in again, their private jet. They would have three Range Rovers waiting for them on the tarmac. They would step out with $25,000 Rolex and a $10,000 suit and an entourage of three people and wondered why they got kidnapped in a third world country. (laughs) Um, Nowadays, it's exactly what Chris said is while they still may do that, it's the LinkedIn profile. So it's more of a, a digital look at me scenario than it was a physical look at me scenario 10 years ago. The result is still the same. <laughs> well, we as executives have to stop telegraphing our punches. <laughs> right. Awesome. Yeah. But certainly interesting times. I mean, it's it's just fascinating to see how all of the different external factors have kind of shaped not just the cybersecurity industry, but the physical security industry as well. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining us this week, Smith. It's it's really been a pleasure. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And thank you, Chris, for a lot of this commentary and perspective about all these different issues and how they kind of intertwine together. Yeah, I could talk about this all day long. So <laughs> love it. <laughs> so before we go, we have a message for our audience, our viewers, our listeners. If you have an interesting topic that you want to discuss or questions about the threats we've covered or anything else really cybersecurity related, Send us a DM on Twitter at The Threat Show or leave a comment on our YouTube channel. We'd love to hear from you, our audience, and we'd be happy to answer any questions that we can. We'll be discussing the relationship between cybersecurity and the recent bank failures in an upcoming episode. So if you have any questions on this topic, we want to answer them. Thank you for listening and make sure you stay tuned to stay ahead of the next set of threats. Thanks again, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Betty. Thank you for tuning into The Threat Show. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on YouTube, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and interact with us on Twitter at The Threat Show. Also, be sure to subscribe to Fletch's interactive newsletter and Trending Threats app to go deeper into the stories we discuss and The Threat Index. Be sure to stay tuned to stay ahead of threats.